Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hi, it's Violet here. In the last decades of the 15th century, life in England was finally starting to settle down after years of upheaval and conflict during the Wars of the Roses. Waves of plague had decimated the population, causing widespread distress, but providing unexpected opportunities for those who survived. This week, the distinguished historian Nicholas Orme takes us to 1480, as England begins to tilt in its language, its education, its understanding of history, and its geographical ambitions towards the qualities that would characterise the Tudor period. Nicholas is well known for writing about the more unusual aspects of history, education, childhood, churches, ecclesiastical life, and even swimming. His latest book, and the first on this subject, Tudor Children, takes the reader from birth to adulthood through the themes of work, play, religion, and education. Nicholas Orme is Emeritus Professor of History at Exeter University, He has written more than 30 books. Please don't forget to check out our website, tttpodcast.com, for images and more information. And please rate and subscribe us on your podcast platform. Welcome to Travels Through Time, Nicholas Orme. Thank you very much for inviting me. Today we're going to be talking about your book, Tudor Children. But before we do, I wanted to ask you a bit about yourself, because you have written widely on childhood in different periods and education and ecclesiastical history. And I see that you also wrote a book about swimming which I thought sounded really interesting and unusual. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit about how you became interested in the subjects which you are an expert on. And, and they, they are they are sort of more on the unusual end of history. And I just wondered how you, how you became interested in them. Yes, I don't know really how I can explain that, but it's been my fate in life to do the subjects that other people weren't interested in. I think I'm basically a collector. I was a great stamp collector when I was in my teens, and um, I often feel I've become a rather super stamp collector. So my speciality, I suppose, is to take a subject that's not got obvious sources and look around for uh, little bits and pieces and build them up into a mosaic. And many people don't like to do that. They prefer to have a very obvious subject like a a war or a biography where there are very obvious sources and you work through them. Uh, Whereas my preference has always been to try and find a subject that isn't at all obvious. And uh, you can, in the end, find enough to give you a picture of it. Well, that's exactly how your books read. They are kind of these amazing mosaics of different little tiny pieces of information, which when taken together, just give the most beautiful picture of, as you say, you know, ch- children, which is not a subject that is written about very much um, in history. And it should be because children are really important. And I wondered, can you talk a little bit about, you You say that you were into stamp collecting. So how do you do your research and how, I'd love to know, do you have lots and lots of, I don't know, little cards with index so that you can access all this information? How do you how do you go about your research process? Yes, I mean, long, long ago, I was into the sort of card index um, situation, but I now write stuff down. I'm still quite old fashioned. I, I write a lot out by hand in libraries, particularly. I don't take a laptop in and, and type up. So I have um, lots of written notes and then I type things up on, uh, on a laptop. And can you talk a bit about the different sources that you used? Because there's lots of, I mean, I'm going to ask you about the illustrations um, in a minute because they're really fantastic. The the different things that you've managed to pull out of obviously manuscripts and such a wide range. But 
where obviously a lot of the information you've got is from example effigies and um, tombstones in churches uh, talk can you just tell us a bit about that kind of research so non-library research yes yeah, so I think this comes out of the difficulty of the topics that I've chosen to work in over the course of my life and one of the reasons why people haven't worked on them is because you really need to be interdisciplinary. At school, I found it very difficult to decide between uh, whether to read English at university or history. In the end, I decided to do history, which I think was right for me, because literature is so much a question of people's opinions, really, whereas uh, history is trying to establish fact. But I've always had a great love English literature and in the period that I've worked in, uh, which is mainly from Chaucer to Shakespeare, I do know that period of literature quite well and I know how to pull stuff out of literature. Oddly enough, there wasn't quite as much about children in Tudor literature as I expected. Um, you, you don't get a lot in medieval literature, but because there's so much more Tudor literature, I thought there would be uh, more, but in fact there wasn't. And then studying churches, you have to get into architecture and and tombs and, and art as well. And I've always been interested in um, liturgy, which is actually quite a difficult subject for people because um, nowadays, when not many people belong to churches, they don't really understand how church services work and why they are as they are but that's always interested me as well and liturgical sources are extremely rich particularly for the previous book I wrote on going to church in medieval England you really had to get down to the liturgical sources to a lesser extent with uh, with this book on Tudor children so uh, that's something I do I gather and uh, I don't mind where I go to gather. I think historians are often shy of this. And to be fair, you don't get much credit in the other subjects for what you do. You are seen, I'm, I'm sure I am seen, as a kind of an interloper in the fields of liturgy and uh, architecture and literature, because I'm not a, primarily an expert in any of those. But I think that's a pity because we ought to range very widely and we ought to use all the sources that are available and potential for uh, recreating the past. And in the spheres that I've chosen to work in, which is cultural and social history, you really have to uh, look at all the different disciplines. And do you, so you've been a, an academic, a professor, um for many years and do you find that that is a feature of was a feature of university life that things were very separate and it was difficult to move between different disciplines yeah so subjects in England in English universities tend to be separate they're separately organized I think America is a little bit more open to cross-fertilization mixing subjects together. It has happened a bit in England with medieval studies, which some universities uh, do, and that will usually bring together historians and literary scholars and art historians. But there is a very great uh, tendency to keep to a single subject. And you see the um, modern research uh, audits that all universities have to undergo nowadays, they're all done subject by subject. I'm not aware at the moment that there's, there's any way of telling your history assessors that you've been doing work in literature and the literary assessors probably wouldn't think much of your work in literature anyway. But that seems like that seems like a real shame, doesn't it? See, that seems very limiting. I wonder if it will ever change. Yes, I wonder. I'm not not in academic life anymore, so there's nothing I can <laughs> do about that. I'm afraid. 
Um, I'm very lucky in my life because for most of it, you were allowed to research on whatever you liked. Towards the end of my time in universities, there were beginning to be policies about research and you were going to have to justify what you were planning to do. The universities wanted you to raise money through grants and uh, also your publication was under some sort of supervision. I was told once, you can't publish with that publisher because they're not well enough known. You've got to go for a national publisher, uh, that kind of thing. But I was very lucky that I was allowed to do my weird research across boundaries. And um, for most of the time I was there, nobody ever really um, tried to restrict me in what I did. I mean, there are organisations like that's, there's certain centres for the history of the book or bibliographical societies, and they tend to encourage a bit of interdisciplinary activity, don't they? But I suppose there's not enough. That's a, yes, that's a very good point. It's something like bibliography does tend to bring um, people together. Uh, so uh, in the research process, I was very interested to see some of the uh, sources that you used. Uh, in particular, you used the diaries of John Dee, and um, I did my thesis on John Dee, so he's very, very close to my heart. And I just wondered how you go about finding those kind of people, those voices who who do unexpectedly talk about children I mean you, you, no one would would um, have predicted that a man like him would have written so much detail about his children and also his wife's menstrual cycle which was really extraordinary so I just wonder how do you discover those voices when you're looking into writing a book yes probably accidentally in, in many cases I have done uh, trolls of of bibliography. There's one very good uh, history website, um, which is the British and Irish um, bibliography run by the Royal Historical Society. So that's a website where you can look up a topic and uh, that will bring out a lot of uh, things that have been written about it and so on. I did read through the catalogue of English books printed since Caxton in 1476. I looked up each year for the Tudor period and saw what came out in that year. And then if I looked at a title that was promising, I then called it up, which of course you can do with all those books now on, on websites. So that was another way of proceeding. And you make all sorts of accidental um, discoveries as well. But there are easily things that you can miss. And I probably have missed some in this book. And let's just talk briefly about the whole idea of childhood in the Tudor period. I think there was a sort of trend in history a while ago that believed that, you know, childhood didn't really exist and that children were just small adults, which, you know, just if anyone who's had children will know that's just not <laughs> very realistic. So can you just talk a bit about the Tudor concept of childhood and what it meant and how long it lasted? Like when were you considered to be entering adulthood, for example? They had a, they had a notion which they inherited from classical times that human life is divided into stages, uh, the so-called ages of man, and that each stage has particular characteristics. Uh, infancy is from 0 to 7, and that's really primarily a period of physical growth, uh, establishing yourself as a human being. And then from 7 to 14, you have childhood, at which mentality is beginning to develop, but it's still immature. And so the great characteristic of childhood was believed to be play, that if you left children alone, all they would want to do was play. And so you could use play to an extent, but you also had to instill discipline because you need the spirit of adult life. And then at 14 or thereabouts, you uh, enter adolescence. Sometimes adolescence is said to end at 21, sometimes it's put later, say 28. 
And that's a period where people have uh, attained physical maturity, but not quite mental maturity. They can uh, sin and commit crimes, and therefore they can be punished, but they're not yet capable of really looking after their own affairs and they still need to be under some sort of governance either by a parent or an employer and it's only when you get to the late 20s which was the main age for marriage that you become a fully adult and independent person. That's so interesting because I think I would you know hopefully I'm not alone I would have assumed that because you didn't live so long you know, it would be, you would be expected to grow up much quicker. That, and I also found it absolutely fascinating when you said that, you know, the average age for men to marry was 28 and for women was 25. Obviously, it was a bit different if you were a Duke's daughter. You might well have been um, married off when you were in your early teens. But that was really surprising to me that it was it was so late. It's because you don't have resources uh, in most cases. Most of the population are either employed or else they are self-employed. They don't have property to any great extent. So you can only marry when you've got uh, the material resources to do so. If you're a peasant's son, um, it's only when your father's getting old that you'll be able to take over the peasant holding and run it and therefore be able to marry. Um, so this is where your shortness of life comes in. But um, if people are marrying at 28, then by the time uh, they're now described as 28, they'll be 56. And that's pushing it towards at least the age of retirement anyway. So that's going to happen. If you're a, a servant just on wages, well, again, it's going to take you some time either to save up money or to acquire skills. Apprenticeship, which was usually from about 14 to 21, it's only in your 20s that you're going to become a master uh, of your trade and be able to open a shop or a workshop. So that all pushes the age of marriage up to where it actually was, with the exception, as you say, of the property classes, where, where that didn't apply. They had plenty of resources and there were other reasons for them to try and uh, uh, make money through acquiring property via marriage and so uh, once a, a noble or gentle son or daughter entered the teens then there might be all sorts of reasons for arranging a marriage for them and they, they could find means of support. Yeah and find themselves married age 13 which would have been strange <laughs> okay well I think let's go to um can we go to your year now which is right at the beginning of the period that you've written about so if you could travel back in time to a year in history Nicholas which year would it be well the year I've chosen to talk about today is the year 1480 it's not a very obvious year to choose the uh, monarch on the throne is Edward the fourth he is pretty firmly in control. He's recovered his kingdom in uh, 1471. His opponents, the Lancastrians, have been vanquished. The, uh, the previous king, Henry VI, is dead. The only Lancastrian possible pretender to the throne is Henry of Richmond, who is an unknown who lives in Brittany and who is not a danger at all. So, it's a reasonably stable time politically. Because I'm a cultural historian, it's a year that interests me because it's a year on the cusp. It's not exactly a year of great achievement, but it's a year of great promise. So that several things are happening, which in the long term are going to be very important for English history. So it's a sort of a, a, a moment when change is starting to happen and things are starting to turn in a slightly different direction. It's like the sun beginning to come up over the hill. In fact, <laughs> the, the, the very first rays or even before the sun 
comes up when you get the glow in the sky but we're entering a new era in various different ways i like that that's a great way of explaining it and so the wars of the roses are starting to calm down and i mean that must be really important for the country after real instability and um lots of sort of years of unrest and civil war basically there would have been no more wars of the roses after 1471 had it not been for that absolute bounder richard the third <laughs> thrown in 1483 and starting them all over again yeah Okay, well, um, let's go to your first scene, which is in London, um, at a very important place culturally. I should think probably the most important place culturally in the country at that time. Could we say that? Yes, we're actually uh, in Westminster rather than the city of London itself. Westminster is still uh, a suburb, a little distance away to the west. And we are outside a premises which has got a sign outside a white shield with a broad red stripe down the middle and this is the premises of William Caxton who opened his printing house four years earlier in 1476 the first uh, printing house in England and he started out in a very interesting way and rather like a modern publisher do he had a list of books as a new publisher would probably have today and his star item was the canterbury tales by chaucer which was the best known and best loved piece of english literature by that time he also from the point of view of childhood is interesting because he began by printing four little books for children. They're very small pamphlet type books, but he clearly saw children as part of the potential market for his books. Two, uh, two of them are school books, I think, and two of them are moral fables. So they're going to be bought by parents to use with their children, possibly to get their children to learn to read. So that's interesting. By 1480, he's published several other books. His main book of 1480 is the most popular world history that was written, that was read at that time, Ranulph Higdon's Polychronic and early 14th century Latin work translated into English in Chaucer's time, and then Caxton uh, reproduces it. And he's going to produce other books uh, in the next few years, uh, an encyclopedia called The Mirror of the World, the, the, the stories of Reynard the Fox, lots of romances. And hasn't Most he translated parts of the Iliad or a version of the Iliad as well, that he translated himself into English and published? He also did um, a book called the Aeneid or Aeneidos, um, which is a, a, a translation. Usually he translated from French rather than from, from Latin. So he's bringing out these books and that obviously is important for the future because this is something new. It's not quite as revolutionary as people think because it's possible to produce books in large numbers by hand. It just takes a rather long time and it's expensive. And there were Scrivener's shops before Caxton where books were being turned out as fast as they possibly could by hand. This is simply the next stage of the technology. Hello there, it's Peter here and it's time for a word about our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours. ACE are a much-loved and long-established business that are based in the award-winning Stapleford Granary Building just south of the University City of Cambridge. I recently spent a day up there with them, seeing what they do and how they build their award-winning tours. Now, these tours are split into categories like archaeology, art and architecture, houses and gardens, music, 
nature, and there are more than a hundred of them setting off over the year ahead. Let me give you a flavour of just a few. In May, for instance, there's the Jewels of the Loire, medieval and Renaissance chateaus, an eight-day adventure into some stirring French architecture. Or, in June, you can join a trip to the spectacular Bark Festival in Leipzig, led by the expert tour director, Richard Wigmore. Or, if you fancy heading in the opposite direction, then in mid-July, there's a five-day archaeology tour to one of the most majestic Roman monuments in the whole British Isles. That's Hadrian's Wall. To find out more about any of these, and many, many more besides, I really do suggest that you explore their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. It's the perfect place for the culturally curious. So would those Scrivener's workshops have also done the similar things to the children's books that he published, sort of more pamphlet-y kind of books? Would they also have been churning those out or not? I don't think they did children's books to that extent, no. I think that's something, I think printing made it possible to produce a much wider range of books as well. It wasn't just that you could produce them more quickly and cheaply, but I think things that previously Scriveners would have said was not really worth doing that. Not enough people will buy it, uh, or, it or we won't make enough profit out of it. And printing, I think, was more adaptable in that respect. It, it enabled the range of titles to be much extended um, because you could print off uh, 100 copies, say, and, and you could gradually sell them over time. As long as you thought there was a, a regular sale, obviously you didn't want to pile up stock then as now, which nobody was going to buy. Yeah. And I read that 80 percent of the books that he published were in English. And that is a very important feature, isn't it? Because this is quite a new thing, having lots of books available in the English language. Well, that had been growing through the late 14th and 15th centuries. So he doesn't start that, but he uh, accelerates it. But there's plenty of uh, manuscripts in English. Uh, being produced from the middle of the 14th century onwards. And the other very important thing that is connected with text and printing is the development of a standard English language, what we might now call King's English. And you have to remember that the growth of a national language was a very slow process in many because Anglo-Saxon England was divided into different regional kingdoms, which spoke in slightly different ways. Then there were the Vikings who came in and they made linguistic differences in the Midlands and the North. And just as the Anglo-Saxons were beginning to consolidate in the 10 hundreds and a, a national language might have evolved then, Norman Conquest was all that back by yeah. introducing French as the standard language of the ruling elites. And so the local dialects, the, the Southern, Kentish, East Midland, West Midland, Northern, continued to flourish. And unlike modern dialects, where it's mainly a matter of pronunciation, they differed often in um, their vo vocabulary and their grammar as well. Now, what's happening in the middle of the 14th century is, is that French is gradually going out of use. In, England is becoming more insulated. Uh, the 14th, 15th centuries, all over Europe, the different parts are becoming more insulated and autonomous um, in terms of culture than they had been in the age of the Crusades, say, where so much was common to the whole of Western Europe. So English is becoming the, the predominant official and literary language. It's always been the main vernacular language, but it's now coming into use for all sorts of purposes. And therefore it's got to be standardized. And that is happening in the 15th century, not by any official pronouncement, but it's just happening. And the form that it's based on is East Midland, partly because that's what is spoken in London, which is the capital 
on so many people are going there, parliament's meeting there, and government is uh, um, diffused from there. And also because East Midland, I think, was a more or less a common denominator. It was one that the others could all relate to, whereas Southerners would have found Northern uh, very diff difficult, uh, for example. And so the production of books in London, pre-Caxton, but particularly from Caxton onwards, is helping to consolidate this. And of course, as soon as you get multiple copies of books going around, people are going to start to imitate the, um, the language of them, the um, spelling and the um, grammar, syntax and so forth. So the way is being prepared in 1480 for the great triumphs of the 16th century. For example, the 16th century brings in a common Bible, which everybody is urged to read. The 16th century in 1549 brings in a common prayer book. There'd never been such a thing before. The same book to be used in every single church. Now you couldn't have had those uh, books. You couldn't have expected people to have all used the same book if there hadn't previously evolved a common English language. So, what happens in the 15th century is making possible the Reformation in the 16th century, for example. Without that, the Reformation would have had to take a totally different form. That's such an interesting point, isn't it? I've never thought about it like that before. And I guess also it this language, this sort of English English language would have fostered a sense of Englishness and, and a new... When you said earlier that the you know there was countries were becoming sort of more insular again, but they were also becoming nations, weren't they? Really, for the first time, so that must have played a role. Having a common language and giving people a shared identity that must have played a role in the sort of development of England as a nation. It certainly wouldn't have weakened uh, nationalism. I think you can probably take nationalism back before then. Uh, I mean, clearly there was an element of nationalism at the Battle of um, Hastings, wasn't there? English v. v. French, or English yeah. v. Hastings. Um, so I think it was always there, but uh, certainly the growth of a common language helps to uh, consolidate it. Yeah, and unite these different areas that, that you were talking about. Um, brilliant. Well, let's move on to scene two now, which is um, a little bit we're basically moving westwards on on our uh, journey today so we're going to uh, as far as oxford yes and in oxford the university is itself evolving from what it has been before it started of course um as a in, in entirely spontaneous gathering of students in 12th century oxford nobody founded it it just happened to be uh, a useful, convenient town for people to get to in the middle of England, and Cambridge was the same, where they could get together and, and study and teach. And originally all the students lived in uh, private houses. These came to be known as halls, and the university put in a a senior scholar as the person who ran the, the place and exerted a bit of discipline on things. Well, during the 15th century, the halls are beginning to disappear. And the reason for that is that wealthy benefactors are founding colleges. Originally, the colleges were only for postgraduate study, which was very expensive. If you'd already you know, spent several years as an undergraduate, you would have not had resources then to go on and study in detail um, law or theology or medicine, which were the, the, the postgraduate faculties. So people are now founding colleges with endowments in which uh, students will be able to, first of all, as postgraduates, but increasingly in the 15th century as undergraduates. And they're also allowing in people who are not being paid for, but paid for themselves. 
in, in recent history, there was the difference between scholars of the college and commoners of the college, or pensioners, as they were called in, in Cambridge. Some had college scholarships, others paid for themselves. So the colleges are becoming more important, but that's really not what I want to talk about in terms of Oxford in 1480. William Wainfleet, Bishop of Winchester, immensely rich man, uh, has founded Magdalen College, one of the largest colleges um, in 1458. And in 1480, he decides to add to this college a grammar school. This was a quite revolutionary idea and still would be today that a university should somehow have a school attached to it. Is it the only one? Were any other schools founded at Oxford or Cambridge that are similar? Jesus College Cambridge had a grammar school for a time, but in the 16th century, there was um, official feeling that universities and schools were quite separate and you shouldn't have schools and uh, the Cambridge School was was got rid of. Magdalen um, Oxford managed to hang on to its school, mainly partly because the city of Oxford pleaded with the Crown to keep it because it was also the local grammar school. And it's still there today. And it's still there today, that's right. Now, um, William Wainfleet founding Magdalen College School, which was simply in part of the college, uh, is making a couple of very original innovations. It's the first time that anybody founding a school has said what the schools should teach. And this may strike you as bizarre. When William of Wickham founded Winchester College in 1382, and when Henry VI founded Eton College in 1440, they didn't say what the school was to teach. You can read through the statutes and there's nothing about it. And the reason is, well, schools teach what schools teach. So it's as if somebody today founded a school and said, well, you'll do some in English, don't you? I mean, we're all schools do. We don't need to say, and well, put a bit of history and French in as well, you know. Uh, that was that was how it was seen. But Wainfleet at uh, Morton College School in 1480 said they are to study classical Latin. Now that's new. The Latin that was studied through the Middle Ages was really late Latin of the fifth or sixth centuries. And it had evolved during the Middle Ages in ways that a classical Latinist would consider to be inappropriate, but was simply linguistic development. Now, what is happening in the 15th century is the Italians, first of all, have rediscovered classical Latin. Cicero. Yes. So authors who had not been much read or read at all during the Middle Ages, Cicero, um, Livy, Salust in prose, Virgil, Horace, Ovid in verse, are being rediscovered. And the Italians, and increasingly after them, the French, Germans, English, are discovering the wonders of classical Latin literature. They love the forms in which they're written, the oratory of Cicero or the, the, the verse forms of Virgil. They love all the new information, all the classical mythology, the, the morality, the, the, the imaginative imagery. They also realize that if we all use classical Latin, there will be something to bring Europe together again, because the study of Latin had tended to diverge from nation to nation in the later Middle Ages, to the extent that when English and French negotiators met together, the French said, well, we can't understand the Latin that the English is speaking. 
Typical French. <laughs> a, a new variant, you know, on the old rivalry. Yeah. So Wainfleet has realised that England must come under this process. And how has he been exposed to that process? Has he been to Italy and studied at Padua or Bologna or somewhere like that? Or No, he hadn't. Um, how did he know about it? He knew about it because it was becoming known in England. Other people were picking it up. So he had decided at a quite late stage in his life because he was getting towards the end of his life in Portalette. I'll do something about it. Oxford is the place, is one of the great places to do it because my school will be open to any graduates in Oxford and they can come into that um, school probably when they first come to university. They, they, they won't be practised in their Latin. So they'll be able to have advanced lessons in this new form of Latin. And so this great educational centre will start to produce people who are up to date in European Latin. And he gets the only teacher in England who can teach uh, classical Latin, who is a man called John Anwickel. And another thing they need is a book because we've got to have some books to teach the, 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 the subject. You can't just do it orally. So Anwickel produces a, a, um, an advanced grammar in uh, classical Latin, and he produces a simple grammar in advanced Latin. And then uh, Wainfleet has yet another good idea, which is we'll have printed school books which nobody has done before, because uh, 1480, it's just after Caxton, uh, another printer has set up in Oxford at that time, and printing is clearly going to revolutionise what we do in school. What you'd had in schools previously, they had had little textbooks, but they'd all had to be written by hand. And I rather think that the schoolmaster used to get his um, senior pupils to write them probably get paid them tuppence for doing it and they charged um, the pupils six books, you know, made a bit of a profit out of it. Well, now we'll have uh, printed school books and school books then become one of the main um, products of printers in England. Paxton doesn't go in for that very much. He went for the quality market, for the romances and, and the histories. But the other printers who soon set up in London, Winking to Word and Richard Prince, Pinson, they go wholeheartedly for school book printing. And so do the printers, incidentally, in the Netherlands. They see England as a great school book market. So lots of the uh, school books that were read in early Tudor England were actually printed in the Netherlands and then shipped over to England. So that's another reason for choosing 1480. Um, this is where you might say the Renaissance, in terms of Latin and literature, is going to start taking off in England. And it's from that that we're going to get, ultimately, Shakespeare and Marlowe and, and the great Elizabethan writers. Wonderful. And the beginning of an educational revolution. Yes. Amazing. Well, let's move on to scene three now, um, which is further west down the M4, Bristol. Tell us what's happening in Bristol. Well, if you'd been walking around Bristol in September 1480, you would have seen something rather odd, which is uh, an elderly man walking along the street, putting one foot carefully in front of the other. And he's obviously thinking very hard. And when he gets to the end of the street, he takes out uh, a bit of paper and a, and, a, and a pen or pencil and he notes down something. This is William Worcester, who is a man who has always interested me. And he's measuring the streets of Bristol. And he's a man who was born in 1415, the year of Agincourt. He studies at Oxford. He becomes secretary to a 
an important knight called Sir John Faston. And he's an absolute polymath and thirsty from knowledge of every possible kind. He is interested in astronomy, for example. He's interested in geography and in history and family history. And in 1480, he's retired. And so he's pleasing himself with what he does. Although he then lives in Norwich, he comes from Bristol. And I think he's at that stage of life that you do get into when you're uh, retired, you start to think about your childhood. Yeah. And so he's on a visit to Bristol where he still has a sister living. And he's decided to write a description of the city. Do we know where he got this idea from? Because this was the first survey of any city in this country, wasn't it? I think it was. Um, there are one or two 12th century short accounts of cities. There's one of London, there's one of Chester. But I didn't know that he would have been aware of either of those. And were there um, were they being done on the continent yet? Because I know in the next century, uh, mapping and surveying went completely mad and people were, were, were doing it everywhere. But was it happening anywhere? I don't think he would have known what was going on on the continent. I think it was his thirst for information of every kind. Yeah. So he's decided to write a description of Bristol. And he's also collecting all sorts of other material. We're lucky because he died very soon after 1480, probably the following winter. And the description of Bristol was never actually finished. But it's like other things I've been talking about, it's a forerunner of what becomes very common in the 16th century. So that uh, in the 1530s and 40s, you have John Leyland yeah. officially going round England uh, with the blessing of Henry VIII and describing the country. And then a bit later on, you get John Stowe writing a very detailed survey of London, and you get William Camden um, writing uh, a survey of, of Britain, Britannia, and you get um, uh, Saxton and, and Speed producing maps of, of England. So William is at the beginning of another trend of cultural history, which is this interest in the land of England. Uh, it's not original to, to, to William by any means. It comes down from earlier writers like Geoffrey Monmouth. It goes right back to um, Roman times, actually. The, there are Roman uh, and Greek topographical works which uh, have set up a kind of tradition. Uh, but uh, William is very interesting and um, his notebooks are full of all sorts of interesting things. And is that I, where this information about Bristol survives in a notebook? So it was never printed or anything? It's No, it was never printed. It was not even known until the late 18th century when it was printed, which is why he's much less known than the Tudor antiquaries. I think William would have actually been a rather trying person to be with because he was hyperactive and he would have quizzed you about anything. I mean, if you've been having a drink with him, you know, you've mentioned John Dee, I mean, he'd immediately want to say, tell me all about John Dee. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, okay, and I've got that down. Well, what else? <laughs> because he's actually got lists, for example, of 30 castles in Cornwall. Well, he must have sat somebody down and said, come on, think of another one, think of another one. So that's William. But there's then just one more important thing I want to say about 1480, um, um, which involves William. William was only in uh, Bristol, I think really in September 1480. And he then went back to Norwich. And I think very soon after that, he died. But... In the summer of 1480, a shipowner called John Jay, who was the nephew of William's sister, Joan, 
decided to send a ship out into the Atlantic to look for the fabled island of Brazil. Now, that's not geographical Brazil now, but it's a wonderful island that they thought was out there. And the ship went out, I think, for about a month into the Atlantic. And it didn't find the island. And because they'd gone rather late in the year, in September, the um, winds, the, as it were, the hurricanes, or the forerunners of the hurricanes, which blew at that time of the year, blew them back again. They were out for six weeks. But again, this is the cusp of something else that's going to happen. 12 years later, Columbus is going to cross the Atlantic. 17 years later, from Bristol again, John Cabot is going to cross to Newfoundland. So again, we're on the cusp of the great explorations. And William was aware of these. He's in his notes, he's got a lot of stuff about the Portuguese voyages down the west coast of Africa. The Portuguese at that time had got about as far down as the Gulf of Guinea and uh, the Cape Verde Islands, places like that, Madeira. And William's got a list of all the islands that they've discovered. So again, we're in, in Bristol, that's just about to become not just um, an English provincial port, but a, a world port where people are going to go out uh, over, over the, the whole of the Atlantic. I love that idea that he was kind of glimpsing things over the horizon, glimpsing the, the future, the, all these amazing wow. things that were going to happen. Um, such a brilliant choice of a year. I think that's one of my favourite years that I've that we've done. I really do. It's, it's such clever choices. Though, yeah, amazing. So there's one last question I have to ask you. Um, and of course, that is, if you could have picked something up and taken it with you from one of these three places that we have visited today, what would it be? Well, I'm going to cheat slightly. Good, this. good. <laughs> I'd like one of Caxton's books. And of course, they're so rare nowadays and expensive that I would never be able to afford one. But what I would like is Caxton's Canterbury Tales. Now, in 1480, I could have only bought the first edition, which came out in 1476. But in 1483, the second edition came out, and that's got most lovely woodcut. Mm. of the knight and the squire and the wife of Bath and so on and um, it would probably you know cost millions today but if I could have a second edition Caxton and to be tales please uh, that would be lovely that is yours to have and to keep and great that you want the second edition rather than the first edition I like the fact that the second edition is actually more interesting than the first um, thank you so much for talking to me today it's been a really fascinating journey well thank you very much it's been fascinating that was me Violet Moller speaking to Nicholas Orme the other day about his highly original and fascinating new book Tudor Children to see some of the charming images it contains, please head to our website, tttpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.